0: Good morning. Hey, how are you? How you doing? Good. That's good. Um, Terry's asked me to speak this morning, and uh, he told me to surprise him. As he said, uh, I think Terry's a little too trusting. Um, so uh, you asked for it. Here we go. Uh, the we're, take, we're, we're taking a transition uh, this week between. Obviously, we finished Nehemiah last week. Are we going into something next week, or you're not sure yet? Okay, you might... Well, you might need to pick up the pieces from what I've learned today, so we'll wait and see. Alrighty. Um, I've titled today's talk, and it is a talk, it's different, it's, we're not, it's not expositional, it's definitely thematic, it's not provocative for the sake of it, but provocative for the sake of having a discussion uh, in this church, because I really think we need to talk about some of this stuff. I've titled this talk, Faithful Living... In a foreign land i guess you could subtitle that with this living as a christian in a post christian culture Uh, we're going to be talking about some of the many challenges that we face uh, as christians in the 21st century today Uh, i'm going to dive right in Um, if you have your bibles flick with me to the book of daniel chapter one Uh, and before we begin please join me in a word of prayer Heavenly Father, uh, it is this time that we come now before you and we just ask that you would help us to hear with clarity truth that is spoken. Enable me to speak your truth. It's a scary thing to talk on a topic because I don't have the guide rails of scripture to just roll through, so I need you here helping me i trust that you know what i've prepared is truth but may it not be received if it is not uh lord we we as a confessing church deny any self-authority to claim to know and define sin for ourselves we don't draw the line between what is good and what is evil And so regardless of our opinions here this morning, we submit ourselves to your truth and your word and the guiding of your spirit. And I pray that we'd be shaken as a church to change. To change not because we aren't relatively healthy, but to change to know how to address the changes in in the culture. To change and see that our position here is um, not for our own sake, but for a greater purpose, and that is to preach the gospel. And so if we're comfortable, I ask that that would be the change that comes, that we would be restless now in a new way. Father, we just give this time to you now and uh, look forward to what it is you have to say. Amen. Alrighty. Uh, You know me, I've got an outline. There's going to be three panels that we're going to move through. Uh, They may be obscure, but if you are wanting to take notes, here we go. Panel one, a brave new world called Babylon. Panel two, Babylonianization. I think I made that up. Um, And the pressures of conformity. And thirdly, drawing the line and identity in Christ. So let's look at the first panel, a brave new world called Babylon. In 1931, the English... Actually, I don't know if it was English. Sorry. The novelist, uh, Aldous Huxley. Was he English? Does anyone know? I think he was English. The English novelist, Aldous Huxley, wrote a book that may be familiar to many of us. I actually had to study it for my HSC and never thought I'd be interested in reading it again. Uh, But here I am. It's the book, A Brave New World. And in this book, um, Huxley anticipates this bleak dystopian vision for humanity. The world is ruled by a small band of elites driven by pleasures and materialism. Uh, Reproduction is genetically controlled, people are psychologically conditioned, no more educational institutions, no more concept of the family or religions, no autonomy or rights for the lower caste. If you've watched The Hunger Games, it's a similar kind of situation. Uh, In short, Huxley feared that what we love the most, our pleasures, our desires, our wants, Ultimately, it is what we love that will be the undoing of society. And I think he was right. But before we dive into that, let me first take you back two and a half thousand years ago to the 6th century BC, to the ancient Near East, where a young teenage Jewish boy named Daniel found himself in the brave new world of Babylon. Look here with me now at Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. And as we track down there, we see in verse 6, Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Let's stop there in the narrative for a moment. There's a whole context here that's just important, and I just can't, don't have time to go there. Um, Talk to me later. I'll uh, get you some lectures from earlier this year. Uh, But for our purposes this morning, I just want to highlight a few things for us. We see first of all, look there, verse 1, God is sovereign over the nations. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, that's the king of southern Israel, there was the whole split north and south, north were gone thanks to Assyria, the south was still surviving, they're about to be taken away by Babylon. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, king of southern Israel, of God's people into the hands of the Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar. And look there, verse 2, Nebuchadnezzar himself took some of the articles of the house of God. And what did he do with them? He brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. That's probably Marduk, the chief God of the Babylonians. Now, this was common practice in antiquity. When you conquer a nation, you conquer their gods. And so you plunder you know, any kind of artifacts that point to their God and you take it away with you and you show your um, domination over them. So here, Nebuchadnezzar takes the articles from the Jews and like a trophy, places it on the shelf in the temple of his God. But let's imagine... Play with me for a moment. Let's just imagine. Use our imaginations that we're all losing progressively in this age of technology and virtual reality. Let's use our imaginations and think of Daniel and his mates as captives in Babylon. Think of the smells, the sounds, the dust. Walk in the streets. Imagine what it would have been like for him and his buddies to walk past that temple, to look in and see the artefacts that once pointed to the holiness of Yahweh, his God, the God of Israel, Now on the shelf of a pagan god in a pagan nation under a pagan king. What a constant reminder to Daniel that he was no longer in Jerusalem. That he was in a foreign land, that he was, in the words of Peter, an alien and a stranger. God is not just forgotten in Babylon, he's mocked. We see this much more graphically in Daniel 5 when the Babylonian king Belshazzar takes the same articles, and he uses them at a drunken party to drink wine out of and carry on. You see, what was once holy is made unholy. What was once absolute is made relative. And you know what? You can smell what I'm stepping in. You know where I'm tracking. It's not that all different from the day that we live in today, is it? Sure, there are obvious differences, okay? Okay. But our environment is not that different in terms of its attitude towards God. We haven't been physically invaded here in Australia. Thank goodness that's more than we can say for our brothers and sisters around the world. We haven't had a Nebuchadnezzar charging on a horse physically. But we have spiritually. We have ideologically. And we have philosophically. And it is laying the foundations, I believe... And you be my judge and critique and disagree with me afterwards, that's what we're here for. I believe we are now seeing the foundations of a brave new Western world. Sociologist Dr. Oz Guinness, he's related to the Dublin Brewer, uh, he says that Western civilization as a whole today is like a cut flower civilization. When you cut a flower off, you disconnect it from its root and it'll look good, and it'll smell great for a while, but then what happens? It'll wither and die. It's inevitable. But in what way is the West a cut flower civilization? Well, if we take a step back, uh, there's going to be some history and philosophy here. Just hold on, please, with me, because this is important. Um, If you take a step back, uh, it was around the 16th century with the Reformation and the Enlightenment and things like that, and so on, that that Western civilization as we know it today rose to dominance. So really the West, as we know it today as a global power, is really only about 500 years old. But what was the ethos behind the rise of the Western end of the world? What were the values that led to the rise of civilization that you and I now live in? What gave rise to ideals like freedom, human worth, democratic, liberty, all the things that that we just assume have been with us, because, you know, this is the world that we live in. It's not in the Middle East. Why is it here? Well, that's a very good question, because the Enlightenment, amongst other things, was all about autonomy from the shackles of religious dogma and God and religion that had oppressed Europe for so long. That's why it's called the Enlightenment, because it's coming out of the dark ages under the papal Rome. It was an exit from all of that. But the great thinkers of the Enlightenment, men like Descartes, Spinoza, Voltaire, Hume, Kant, they came to realize very quickly that as soon as you throw away the idea of God from your thinking, then you're faced with the overwhelming challenge of trying to explain and ground things like human worth, dignity, Morality, ethics, because if there is no absolute moral point of reference, how do you ground the concept of civil liberty, democratic rights, equality? That question is still debated in university today, by the way, and you'll find a lot of books on the shelf about it. So while these Enlightenment thinkers had a profound impact on the shape and trajectory of the Western world like we are in it today and you and I are heirs of that they had no answers to these basic issues of human rights and existence and essence in fact many of them like David Hume just collapsed into this wholesale sense of skepticism and you and I still see the tremors of that today a lot of skeptical people out there now as Christians we answer this question quite simply don't we By virtue of the fact that human beings are made in the image of God, no matter who you are or where you come from, Christian or not, every individual is endowed with inherent worth and inherent dignity and inherent value by virtue of the fact they're made in the image of God. The imago dei. And this is the reason why the West rose to dominance, because men and women of the faith, men like William Wilberforce, Henry Thornton, Thomas Clarkson, the Quakers back then who rose up within the, uh, the context of the Enlightenment and the momentum of the, the, the Enlightenment who were driven by profound Christian beliefs. They did not mince their words, read their books. They were very plain about the fact that they had a faith and that they believed in God. They rose up. They stepped out of their comfort zones into the public square as a voice for the ethos of the Judeo-Christian worldview, as advocates for the orphan and the widow, as a voice for the poor and the marginalised. And, you know, we didn't tee this up, Terry and I, this morning, and I just find it amazing that he happened to share that with us this morning, that uh, point about how to use our money. These guys were champions of equality, human rights, freedom, dignity, individual worth, values that are infused now within our Western mindset that we just take for granted. That is why the West became great. And this is not just evangelical claptrap, okay? I'm not just, you know, reading history with my Christian goggles on. This is affirmed by um, scholars of all religious persuasions. Historian David Bentley Hart writes this. One finds nothing in pagan society remotely comparable in magnitude to the Christian willingness to provide continuously for persons in need, male and female, young and old, free and bound alike. People now simply take it for granted that institutions of public welfare, like free hospitals and soup kitchens or free education, are a social good, whether or not they are economically beneficial. We may only pay lip service to care for the marginalised, But we do so knowing that this is a moral good, even a moral responsibility. Over the centuries, people absorbed this sensibility into their moral DNA. And while there have been terrible failures along the way, the world is a substantially kinder, more compassionate place than it would otherwise have been. He's talking about the West, and I agree. You see, Western civilization has profited from this de facto relationship that it's had with the judeo-christian worldview it has been blessed by the light of the gospel maybe analogous to what paul talks about in corinthians about a unbelieving spouse being sanctified by the believing spouse there is a blessing that comes when you're with those who walk in the light because their light shines on others that's not to say everyone in the west has been christian not at all That's not to say that Australia itself is a distinctively Christian nation. It absolutely isn't. But that is to say that Christianity has been a part of our Western cultural momentum and there was once upon a time when you could speak of the church or a Christian or the person and work of Jesus Christ and he was not only known and understood, at least in the mind, but it was taken and carried some sort of weight like a moral uprightness and respect. It's fascinating I'm listening to a radio broadcast from the 50s, I think it was, and they were talking about um, issues in public. And this one guy who was on the radio program was just appealing to the authority of God, and that was accepted as a legitimate authority. Imagine that happening today. But all of that's changed now. That's not the world we live in today. We are a cut flower civilization. The West has severed its roots from its own Judeo-Christian worldview within which it was born out of. You and I as the church today are facing off with a challenge that's not unprecedented in history, but it is very, very, very rare. And that's why I want to be talking about this as a church. We are not just facing a moral change. We are not just facing moral normalisation. We are facing a moral reversal. Moral changes are common. Christians have faced them in every age advancing in sciences technologies whatever we have to we have to ask ourselves these questions you get enough moral changes together and you've got a moral transition these happen every couple of centuries you know equality women slavery all the rest some for the good some for the bad but a moral reversal is something else entirely and that is what you and I are in now It's not just a transition where something that was thought of as wrong is now right or something that was right is now wrong. As Theo Hobson, a British theologian, says, a moral reversal is where something that was considered wrong is now celebrated. And not only that, but the very act of refusing to join in on the celebration, that is itself the immoral act. And that is condemned by the majority. Sounds familiar, right? This is just Romans 1. They not only practice such things, but approve of those who practice them. I was chatting with Brad earlier today, and he reminded me of a song. Listen to this. How many years ago? 30 years ago or something? So this guy was on the ball, and I think we would be affirming this only... More so today. Stop the World by Randy Stone Hill. Well, it's okay to murder babies, but we really ought to save the whales. We're just putting criminals in office because it's just way too crowded in jails. TV is our teacher now. The schools are overrun by thugs, and children keep their innocence and graduate to sex and drugs. Right is wrong, wrong is right. White is black, black is white. I think I just lost my appetite. Stop the World. I want to get off. Cows, we have a moral reversal here in the west and that is why the church of jesus christ not all churches and i'm going to talk about that later that is why the church of jesus christ the biblically confessing church that refuses to join in on the party of society is now being viewed with disdain with disgrace is branded as unloving immoral bigoted narrow hateful and oppressive i'm certainly not standing sitting here trying to suggest that the history of the church is clean It's not. We do not have a clean track record. I'm simply highlighting the fact that there has been a revision of Christianity within Western civilization, where we are now, as the church, being seen as immoral. Where did all of this begin? Well, it started from the top with the modern elites in the academy and the universities. Thinkers have thoughts and thoughts have impacts. I actually remember listening to a talk about a decade ago when I first went off to university about how... Uh, children from Christian homes that have a professing faith in Jesus go out to university, and by the end of their first year in college, 70 to 85 percent of Christian youth were walking away from the faith because of the hostility and the anti-religious agenda and culture within the institution and the academies. The university used to be the dangerous place. it's not the case anymore. Within a decade, go to university, it's going to be no different to walking down the street. It's everywhere. It's not just the academy. Like Daniel, you walk down the street of Babylon today, you'll see blasphemy on display. In the pagan temples, you'll see it in the arts, you'll see it in the media, you'll see it on YouTube, signs, billboards. You just need to look at the quality of reality TV shows today and see how sin is not just normalised, it's celebrated. Any sense of Christian ethos has all but evaporated. So you see, we are in this transition today. We are moving from this de facto relationship that we have enjoyed, and Christians have just you know, taken for granted for the past couple of hundred years. And we have now moved into this cut flower civilization. The West has cut itself off from the very thing that made it great to begin with. And as a really good old dead guy, G.K. Chesterton, once said, when man stops believing in God, he doesn't then believe in nothing. Alas, it's much worse, he will believe in anything. And this is what we see in Daniel, by the way. You flick over a couple of pages to Daniel chapter 3, and you'll see how Daniel makes this big statue. Sorry, Nebuchadnezzar makes this big statue of himself, this big golden statue. And he demands worship. So, do you see what's going on here? Chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar takes the articles of God, takes that which is representative of the holy, takes that which is holy, reduces it to the relative, realizes that that is not sustainable, so he takes that which is relative himself. Elevates that to the position of the absolute, Daniel chapter 3. Flipped on its head, Romans chapter 1. He exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forevermore. Amen. Why is all this worshipping going on? Because man was made to worship his maker. Human beings are hardwired for worship. If we don't worship God, we're going to worship something else. You see this over and over and over and over again in Daniel. It gets tiring by the end of it. Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius the Mede, Cyrus, Alexander the Great, Antiochus, Epiphanes, all the way on, down through the corridors of history to the 21st century today. And you and I in our own lives can bear witness to this. Listen to what uh, a guy called Charles Taylor had to say. This is a quote from another book by Joel Green, but... He's talking about Charles Taylor. Charles Taylor, he wrote a book called A Secular Age, sketches the development of modern identity from Augustine through to Descartes, Locke, Kant, and on and into the Romantics. He finds that personal identity has come to be shaped by assumptions such as these. Human dignity lies in self-sufficiency, self-determination, identity is grasped in self-referential terms, I am who I am, persons have an inner self, which is the authentic self, and the basic And basic to authentic personhood are self-autonomy and self-legislation. Now, this isn't news to us. We've all been aware of this, I trust. It's just the world we live in today. Taylor himself actually calls this period that we now live in the age of authenticity because, I guess, Western civilization, you know, by putting away religion and God and all the rest, is finally expressing its true individuality, its true self. That's why ideas like individuality, equality, rights, pro-choice, individual tolerance, acceptance, diversity, and so on, all of these values have been elevated to a whole new level today. I'm not saying they're bad, I'm just stating the obvious. I mean, these buzzwords 10 years ago and on off to uni did not have the same amount of baggage like they do today words like equality, and rights, and choice. They are loaded today with a whole new sense of meaning. And I'm not saying again that the fruit of all of this radical individualism is bad. I'm not saying that. I mean regardless of your opinion, I don't wanna get too political, (laughs) regardless of your opinion on immigration policy and all the rest, we're seeing some of the biggest advocates coming from the liberal left that are hostile to Christianity championing the rights of the individuals coming in on the boats. There is some good in this, but as a whole system, it is fundamentally bankrupt. That's an interesting point, by the way. Uh, There is truth in other religions, elements, but as a whole, it is a lie, and that's why it's so dangerous, because a little bit of truth is enough to kill you and send you to hell. But you have to sit back and ask yourself, where did this idea of individual rights and equalities and class and caste and race, where did these ideas come from? Where did these ideals come from? You have to admit that they have come from the Judeo-Christian worldview. And please, the challenge is now out. Show us historically if that is not the case. Because I want to know. I want to learn. Okay? I want to be challenged. but I was reading that by an atheist philosopher. Christianity is the only worldview that says no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, what the color of your skin is, you have inherent worth, inherent dignity, inherent value by virtue of the fact you're made in the image of God. No other worldview would ever paint you like that. It would be blasphemous for a Muslim to say that about you. It is a distinctively Christian truth. So the irony and sadness of all of this is, of all this cut flower civilization, is this. We are either ignorant or just could not care less about the basic fact that civilization today has now used its freedom to sever itself from the very thing which gave it and incentivized within it and instilled within it the very notion of freedom to begin with. Christianity. How has all of this come about? What has led to all of this? What has caused the change? Because any sort of worldview comprehension or intellectual understanding of what's going on in the world today has to recognise that this kind of stuff just doesn't happen overnight. Casting crowns, it's a slow fade when you give yourself away. When black and white it turns to to grey. Thoughts invade, choices are made, a price is paid when you give yourself away. And as the church let's just be honest i think it's been a bit of a rude shock for us we just took for granted religious liberties we just took for granted tax exemption on our rent on our buildings we just took for granted scripture in schools and now we're scrambling trying to work out what's going on how do we deal with this what do we say do we retreat do we go in what do we do what is the role of the gospel in the public square Friends, the foundation has been cracking for some time now, and not only that, but a new foundation was being poured underneath all along. What is it? Let's take a look at our text again. Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. Then the king instructed, verse 3, Yet then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men, in whom there was no blemish but good-looking, gifted, In all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had the ability to serve in the king's palace in whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those were the sons of Judah, from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Mishak and to Azariah, Abednego. So Daniel is away from his home, he's away from his family, away from his community of faith faith, and thrust into this Babylonian pagan land, pagan gods, pagan king and he's now received a pagan education Verse 4, and if you know anything about ancient Babylon, you know that they were huge in the area of science and astronomy and astrology and cosmology. It would have been a radical change in terms of the intellectual thinking for Daniel and his mates. A worldview, comprehension thrust upon these boys who back in the day would have been on the hills in Israel looking up at the sky, thinking along with their brother David, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they declare knowledge. That's not what they're hearing anymore. In fact, we are, that's not what we're hearing anymore. <laughs> we are made of stardust, said Carl Sagan. Like Daniel, our modern day Babylon has given us not just an intellectual modification, but an entirely new naturalistic foundation. And that will maybe start to give you an idea of why this is happening so quickly. But that's not all that's going on in Babylon. Look here, verse 7. They receive new names. Babylon is in the business of changing names. The name Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh has shown grace. Mishael means who is like God. Azariah means Yahweh has helped, but not anymore. Belteshazzar means may Bel or Marduk protect his life. Shadrach means the command of Aku. Mishak means who is like Aku. And Abednego means servant of Nabu. No longer are these boys identified with the gods of Israel. They're identified with the gods of Babylon. Babylon is in the business of changing names. And what's in a name? An identity. That is significant. Let me tell you why. Genesis chapter 11. What do we see? We read about this place, verse 2, called the land of Shinar. Where's Shinar? Well, Daniel chapter 1, verse 2. Shinar is Babylon. Just the old name for it genesis chapter 11 something happens what happens well there's this bunch of guys the ancestors of the babylonians and they go about this little building project and what do they try and build they try and build this tower that became known as the tower of babel that is the ancestors of nebuchadnezzar and his kin and what was their goal genesis 11 4, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens let us Make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Babylon is in the business of changing and making names. And folks, we are seeing this across our land today. What we have in the West is a crisis of identity. With the loss of the Christian worldview, even just as an operative framework within our society we have lost any point of reference for self-identification outside of ourselves. Now as Christians, we, uh, we know where all of this comes from, I'm not surprised by this, we talk about this in church all the time, it's called sin. Genesis chapter 3, there was once a time when man and woman walked in the garden with God in intimate fellowship with him, with only one prohibition not to eat from the tree because why in the day that you eat of it you will your eyes will be open being like god knowing good and evil and you will surely die i take that to mean that in the day you eat of it you will start to define for yourself what you think is good and evil you see it's all self referential it's been happening one way or another ever since the fall why am i getting so excited about it now because we're seeing it in an potentially unprecedented fashion today, the modern environment called modernity has instilled this within us, the idea of self and all the rest, self-identity, in a whole new way. It has just infused this into people today. What do I mean? Let's take one example, consumerism. Taylor in his book, again, A Secular Age, talks about how after World War II, we saw an explosion of capitalism and consumerism that intensified this idea of individual expression. How? Well, to put it simply, TVs replaced conversations. No longer were we sitting around as a family talking at night. Under the candle, we were in front of the TV, under the dim light of whatever our favourite show was. Cars have the ability now to take us away from civilization on holidays. Again, please don't hear something I'm not saying this morning. I'm not knocking these things. I'm making observation. But they have have given us an an improved means to withdraw from society. He even talks about how individualistic things like washing machines are. Because there used to be once upon a time you'd go out and you'd wash in the community with your neighbours. Not anymore. You just push the button they are to switch. What do we see today? Let's modernise this a little bit more. Well, we don't need to get out anymore into the community. Why? Because I've got my nine Facebook communities. I've got my phones. I've got my computers. Skype and FaceTime, they connect us to anyone, anywhere, anytime around the world. I don't need to get out anymore as much. Well, think about Twitter. This idea that you can express yourself in 140 characters or less. It is a tangible expression of how we as a society just don't know how to engage with one another in a robust dialogue and debate anymore because we, and that is why we're interacting so much today on big issues at a hashtag slogan level. And again, I don't want to get political here, but it is fascinating to me that there are some parties within this nation that do not want to have a debate. They want to shut it down, push it through and get on with it. They want to shortcut the democratic process, which is exactly what happened in the USA through the Supreme Courts, on big issues that will affect everyone. Because we don't know how to handle conversations like this. Again, a non-Christian guy wrote a fascinating book, uh, Malcolm Gladwell. It's called Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking. And he talks about how we only know how to interact on level one, the soundbite slogan level, you know how, you, if you want to challenge that idea, you know the, the slogan level. Next time somebody says to you, um, "Let me choose a topic that won't get confusing." Let's, next, next time somebody says to you that they're against this issue, just ask them the question why, and just watch how you know they kind of turn in on inside themselves. There's, it's people find it really hard. You know, I'm not given. Somebody asked me once about, you know, I don't believe in God because I believe in science, and I just said, "Well, what are science?" How does science disprove God? And it's fascinating to see how people can't just explain that. It's because they're bought in to the cultural tide. You know what I'm saying? Modernity has changed the world. Gone are the olden days of the village square, the public square. We now live in what is a global square. That is globalisation, the three S's. I think I get it. Speed, Simon 80, and I've forgotten the other one. That's awkward. Globalisation has connected us. The internet, the blog spheres... Um, oh goodness, I'm running out of time. I'm not even halfway through. Um, <laughs> you know what? I'm going to push on. If people want to leave, they can go. Sorry. Um, the blogosphere is all of this stuff. Um, we are in a world where, now where uh, we are speaking, not necessarily to everyone, but everyone can listen, and that has deadly effects. Look at Charlie Hebdo. Of course, there's a lot of good which has come from this. Again I'm not denying that. The point is simply this: Remember back with those enlightenment thinkers. You got rid of God. Thinkers lead to thoughts. Thoughts lead to impacts because belief affects behaviour. And this is why whatever is legalised in this nation from the top down will have a profound effect on every individual within this nation because laws shape society, society shapes beliefs, belief shapes actions. And let's talk about the sharp end of the cultural war today. Let's bite the bullet. Same-sex marriage. Like consumerism, this debate has not come out of nowhere. A lot of guys I've been reading about this uh, have ha- have really highlighted to me how this really doesn't even have a lot to do with homosexuality per se as much as it does with the bad ideology of marriage. It was from the sexual revolution of the 60s it was from that movement that we saw the rise in the hookup culture, the rise in the epidemic of pornography, premarital sex, non-marital childbearing, high rates of divorce and so on. It was these heterosexual issues within Western civilization that have been culturally redefining marriage all along. We're just catching up with it in Parliament now for a legal redefinition. This is not really about homosexuality as much as it is about a bad ideology of marriage within the culture. See what I'm saying? Taylor writes again that coming out of World War II, we saw this sexual revolution. And listen to this as a quote, a new conception of one's sexuality as an essential part of one's identity, which not only gave an additional meaning to sexual liberation, but also became the basis for the emancipation of a whole host of previously condemned forms of sexual life. Now sexuality was not a matter of healthy or even natural appetite, it was who you were. You see, after World War II, sexual expression became an end in itself, a part of your identity. So if you step back from just these two examples, consumerism, the sexual revolution, what do we see? Western civilization as a whole has undergone a massive change in the past 50 or 60 years from where making money and having sex was to nurture community and our duties within the cultural context, within a flow, within a community. To now, where making money and having sex is all about creating your own identity. It is all about your individual expression against the cultural flow. That is a massive change. Taylor calls it the uh, the great subjective turn in civilization, because unlike before, where we found our identity in relationships and with community or God or family, now we look to our inner selves. To find who we truly are and then and only then will we be able to live and to love and to have life and have it to the full. John 10.10. The old ideals of self-sacrifice have been replaced with self-assertion. Communal duties with individual desires. I was listening to Tim Keller this week and... As always, he makes a fantastic comment about how the new heroic narrative is not so much to supplement your individual interests within the context of a community or a family or God, but is to find your inner self and assert it in spite of your family, in spite of your community, and certainly in spite of that thing called God and the church. It was Keller again who who gave the analogy of babe. The pig that wanted to be a sheepdog, and by the end of it, by golly, he was a sheepdog. He brought the sheep home. Going against the status quo. And that's not to make fun of this situation. Not at all. I'm just highlighting a very serious point. That identity has been translated into individual expression, challenging the status quo. And you know, Bruce Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner, that would be the icon of this idea of individual expression. But this idea just isn't out there. The pressures of Babylon have squeezed and fragmented churches to culturally conform. To the point that they now look more like the temples of Babylon than they do the bride of Christ. What we see in some denominations today is nearly indistinguishable from paganism. And that's a fearful thing because Jesus reserves his perhaps most harshest words for these kinds of people. The lukewarm church, Revelation chapter 3. Going against the status quo in the Bab- is the Babylonian way of life and anything that threats the Babylonian way of life cannot be tolerated. Look at Daniel chapter 3, the fiery furnace. Look at Daniel chapter 6, the lion's den. These boys, Daniel and his mates, they were threats to the Babylonian way of life because they gave to Caesar what was Caesar's. But when Caesar asked of them, or when, more correctly, when Nebuchadnezzar asked of them what was God's, they did not bow the knee. In fact, Daniel got told in Daniel chapter 6, don't pray. So what does he do? He goes away And he he gets on the knees, he opens up his doors, he looks east towards Jerusalem, and he prays about the very fact that he can't pray. And he was branded an enemy of the state, and he suffered for it. You know, the Australian Constitution, we live in a nation that was uh, drawn up. The Constitution was drawn up within the context of European secularization. And we were meant to be a secular nation, a religiously neutral nation in the sectarian sense of not allowing any one religion to have a monopoly over another. And I'm all for that, by the way. Maybe that's another sermon. But there is a distinction between church and the state in scripture, I believe. The Bible never calls Christians to enforce some sort of pseudo-messianic socialist state upon an unwilling society. That drives against the very heart of the gospel ethic of love and choice, where God asks us to come to him, but he will not force that on anyone. And when you try and enforce the church upon the state, like the papacy did in the Middle Ages or the Church of England, or, you know, any other... Issue, an era in history, take your pick, then you very quickly come to the awkward realization that no longer is the church in the world, nor is it of the world, the church has become the world. When the state harnesses religion, the clock begins to tick for the extinction of the state and the religion. And this isn't just Christianity. Look at any, any look at Daniel, look at any history where this has happened. Look at the tyrannical 20th century under the ideologues who did not believe in God, under the worldview of atheism, the damage that was caused under Hitler's new race, under Stalin's new man. Look at communism. You want to see a graphic picture of this, get on Google today. Google images, type in North Korea satellite picture at night and you will see a striking image of what communism does to a nation. Lights all around, black. Black. The difference between those worldviews and Christendom, by the way, if I can say this, is that those worldviews—this is—you'll handle it. Those worldviews are working on the logical outworking of their belief about what it is that man is. Christianity, Christendom, the papacy, the Middle Ages was in direct violation of the teachings of Jesus. We must admit that religious neutrality is a myth. We are not living in a secular nation. We have moved from the idea of secularism to pluralism, competing worldviews, and now in the last 10 years, it has turned to this anti-religious agenda. So when people talk about secularism, I just want to know what they mean by the term. How ironic is all of this, by the way, that in the day and age which we now live, which bows down and worships at the altar of self-expression and going against the status quo, that when we Christians stand up in public, in the public square of opinion, and express our Christian individualism that goes against the status quo, of going against the status quo, we are called names. We are silenced. Look at the Christian lobby, reading, uh, John Dixon had stuff taken down on Facebook because it was too controversial. He had to get the uh, media minister for media to, to reverse it. I'm not this is here, okay? This is the self-defeating nature of religious pluralism. All views are equally valid except for the view that says not all views are equally valid. We live in a very confused day. We live in a very lost day. But that's no surprise because people don't know who they are. They've lost their identity. That's the new heroic narrative. And where has it taken us? We've lost the definition of self. You can have over 50 gender options on Facebook. We've lost the definition of life, look at the womb. We've lost the definition of marriage and family structure, look at our current debates, and we're losing the definition of home. When you add all of those elements together, what do you get? Life, marriage, family, home, you have a civilization. People make up families, families make up communities, communities make up societies, societies make up culture, culture makes up civilization. You better believe that this stuff affects all of us. How far down the path are we gonna go before you realize the damage? That's my question. I find it striking that John Hopkins um, was the first medical institution to do a transgender reassignment surgery and now they are the first one to come out and say this is not only not helped the psychological state of some of these people, it's actually causing more damage. That's not me, that's not the church, that is empirically verifiable medicine from one of the world's leading medical institutions. The sun is setting on the west I don't know maybe there'll be a reformation maybe not we know it's going to get worse i don't know if that's going to be now in our lifetime i don't know i'm not going to say anything like that but we have not chosen to be in this day and age we didn't choose when we would be born daniel did not choose to be taken to babylon god in his sovereignty has placed us here you and i have been placed here For what reason? What are we called to do? Let's look now at our final panel for this morning. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. Drawing the line and finding your identity in Christ. Verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. For the sake of time, I'm going to stop there. Uh, There's, again, please read through the history there. Let's just draw out the principle. Faced with the pressures of Babylonian conformity, what did Daniel do? First, he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. That's important. Daniel did not find himself taken away from Babylon, confused and unsure as to how he should react. He had an inward resolution of the heart and mind that preceded his outward action of refusal. He knew who he was and so he knew how to act. Peter calls us to prepare our minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He goes on, 1 Peter 1.14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which you have in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behaviour, because as it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Daniel was faithful in his calling. He drew his lines of resistance. He did not bow By his own strength, absolutely not. No, not at all. By making a name for himself, no, not at all. Because he had the sure and secure identity of being a child of God. The thing that was lost in Eden, that the whole world has been looking for ever since, Daniel had. And when all else faded away, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius the Mede, Cyrus. There's a little Jewish boy named Daniel that was still there. You know, after Genesis chapter 11, falling of the Tower of Babel, you flick over one chapter to Genesis chapter 12, and you see God call a man named Abraham. And he says, get out of that land, and I will make your name great. is there anything wrong with having a name no but you don't make that name for yourself this is my testimony by the way this is when i was a kid dad always used to look at me and say david stop trying to be something you're not and boy did that get me into trouble i'm just so thankful now that i've found who i am in christ it is exhausting trying to be something you're not how liberating when you realize that for yourself You cannot look inside yourself to find out who you are. You can't. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? There's only one. It's the one who sent his son into this world. So that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He who knew no sin became sin for you so you might know the righteousness of God. As Christ ones, our name is graven in his hands. It is written on his heart. I don't need no other name amount of time let me just list five points for you to walk away from today first know your identity love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength this is crucial this is the vertical dimension of our relationship with god himself know who you are in christ so that when you find yourself in babylon you won't be caught out unawares you will know your resolve be aggressive with sin in your own life and be patient with sin in others daniel knew this Daniel knew this, he knew who he was, he had this inward resolution of the heart, he knew his own sin, how, chapter 9, he was a man of the books, he knew the God's word, and all the way throughout, Daniel, you cannot miss it, he was a man of prayer, the only way you and I can survive in Babylon is if we depend on God, and let's, by the way, not give up while we have the liberty of meeting with one another, this little building here, it's our embassy in Babylon, okay, we come together to encourage each other, and to to rejuvenate that vertical relationship that we have with god secondly be in the world but not of the world this is an oxymoron i know it's like what does that mean you know you can have your cake and eat it too or then you give me cake and can i eat the cake? it's but then you realize that having your cake means cake. all right the point is <laughs> that being in the world and not of the world what does that mean well let's again look at the look at daniel he was in the world but not of the world did he try to take over no he didn't try to take over, but did he withdraw? No. Daniel never withdrew into some pious ghetto, build up big walls, a fence, his own cabbage patch, and never interacted with the world. We have a word for that. It's called a cult. Jesus prayed, John 17, that the Father would not take us out of this world, but protect us from the evil one in the world. That we would be sanctified in truth. That we would be in the world, become a part of the institutions, the societies, the Babylonian education programs, sporting teams, skate parks of Babylon, whatever. Don't be scared of using technologies like Facebook or Twitter. Use your discretion. I don't want to be, you know, telling you to do something you're not comfortable doing. You know what I mean? Don't be scared of using the infrastructure of Babylon the issue is not the modern thing it's what you do with the thing and I just marvel at the fact that probability says you and I should not have been born in this country with these comforts and with these luxuries and here we are yes enjoy technology yes take comfort in them yes use them for your rest use them for entertainment for the enjoyment and nourishing, and all the rest of your own family but do not be a passive consumer be an active user of them for God's glory You have a commission, that is your assignment as a Christian, be salt of the earth, light of the world. It was not Pharaoh who made the difference, but Joseph. It was not the Persian monarchs, but Esther, Daniel, Nehemiah. And don't forget the fact that you and I are probably here today because of men like Wilberforce and all the rest. He was actually the guy that ensured a chaplain got on the first fleet to begin with. We are sitting here today because men and women of the faith got off their butts and pushed themselves out of their comfort zones into the public square of popular opinion and were a voice for truth. That is critical today because it is the truth that will set people free. And I I would maybe, I don't, maybe I want to say this it is your democratic responsibility as a Christian. I'm not saying you need to go, you know, with a, with a sign down the road. That's not what I'm talking about, you know. But you have a role in society to have a voice for change and for good. Third, understand the world you live in. Uh, we need to improve here a lot, I think, even here in this church. We need to educate ourselves on the world. Daniel was educated in Babylon. He knew the philosophies. And, you know, for me, personally, uh, I want to know a worldview better than somebody else does. So that when I talk to them, you know, we can really engage but if all we ever do is hang out with Christian friends, if all we ever do is read Christian books, watch Christian movies, Christian music, all the rest, how on earth can we expect to take captive every worldview to the obedience of Christ, as Paul calls us to, if you don't know the other worldview? <laughs> We're not called to be Bible scholars or apologists, I get that, but God has placed you here in a post-Christian culture and frankly, you don't have a choice, okay? You've been called to transform yourself by the renewing of your mind. We are called to give an answer for the hope that we have within and watch how the Holy Spirit will use you in that moment anyways. He'll give you words or take them away. In fact, in my case, a month ago, this Sunday, right now, at this time, I was flying back from Melbourne. I uh, sat on the plane, Julie and I, next to this bloke who was just too happy to talk. He's just coming back from an assignment overseas with the military. Being involved in the military workspace, we got talking. Uh, and Julie dropped about 15 minutes in on the flight. It's an hour and a half flight. She dropped that God has just blessed her with her work, et etc. Et and I was like, yeah, good one. And then he, threw, and he came back and said, you know what, I, I picked up on that. And he just started talking about God. And, uh, and then he started talking about how he um, has lost the faith. Uh, he was about mid, just under 50 years old. Oh, no, it would have been around his 50s. He's has lost the faith uh, and he started explaining why. You know, we just asked questions why. And he started explaining how, you know, he's seen some horrific suffering and pain around the world, things that I wouldn't even be appropriate for me to share from this platform um with you know the ebola crisis and things like that and then um you know he's saying all this stuff about pain suffering how god can't exist how would god allow this etc. julie's kicking me you know next to me she's kicking me like this is your thing you know you you think you're you read your books don't you you know this and i'm just sitting there and i'm just like thinking 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 i'm like i just blank could not think of the thing (laughs) And, uh, and so I actually... Then I was just praying, praying, praying. God, give me something, give me something. What, what did Ravi say? Did it? Uh, <laughs> blank, blank, blank. An hour later, blank. So, and so in the moment of that, I was thinking, what would I say? And I thought, well, what have I said to people at Bible study too many times now? Ask questions. So I just asked questions. Just asked questions. Kept on asking questions. And you know what? We turned in on final approach here over the top of Stockton to land. Boom. You know, like it, it uploaded. And I was like... <laughs> And I had, you know, my whole sermon on John 11, which is all about pain and suffering. I had, like, you know, everything in my head. And I thought, okay. Um, And then I just, I didn't know what to say, so I just gave him one little thing. I said, you know what, go read John 11. Can I just encourage you to read John chapter 11? Look at, uh, you know, verse 4. Pain and suffering, Lazarus dies, Mary and Martha are beside themselves. But look at what Jesus says at the beginning. It's for God's glory. And how? At the resurrection. Maybe just have a read of that and ask yourself, could there be a bigger context here? Uh, that you and I are just not uh, aware of. Because, you know, when you, if you were to stop a cesarean halfway through, you would think that those doctors are the worst people in the world if you hit the pause button. But you don't have the full picture. And uh, he gave me his card and he wants to have dinner sometime. Who knows? So God may take words away from you. Fourth, sorry, uh, fourth, be a witness for the gospel in truth and love. If what our civilization is missing is its identity, if that identity only comes from a restored relationship with Jesus Christ, then the best thing you or I can do is model that kind of selfless, sacrificial love to those around us. And let me be very clear on something here. The world is not the enemy. The residents of Babylon are not the enemy. The world is just not the answer. The residents of Babylon are our mission field they are human beings made in the image of god and we just want to see them off this exhaustive treadmill of self-referential living fifth and finally rejoice and give thanks and be glad for the power of the gospel no matter how dark the time so often it is in trials and tribulations that the church grows and the gospel shines. The darkest moment in human history was the death of our Lord Jesus, but, oh, it was glorious. There was a dawn. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. A mighty fortress is our God. Let us pray, and let us talk about this in the very least as a church. Okay. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just now pray for our nation, pray for society, pray for civilization, the world within which you have placed us, uh, that has lost its identity, doesn't really seem to ask, um, ask questions that have significance beyond itself it doesn't see the need for you at all Uh, we pray for this nation we pray for our leaders that truth would uh, be spoken but lord uh, we realize that that is the reason why you have the church in this world it is to speak your truth it is to be that light in a dark world so Father, to that end, I ask that first of all, everyone here would know who they are with the surety in Christ, have that vertical relationship secured and anchored and the roots go deep so that they can then extend that horizontally in public, in the public square. Love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength so that we can then turn around horizontally and love our neighbour as ourselves. We have no business doing that unless we know who we are first in you raise up cupbearers, father raise up grandsons to be a voice in this public square for change for god for you to represent truth and we aren't naive about the fact that we are going to suffer because when truth is made out to be a lie and the lie is made out to be the truth and you can be sure we can be sure that those who stand for the truth are going to pay the price Father, thank you for the grace that we have received that we have just taken for granted for so, so long in our, in our lives. Forgive us for that. But Father, we thank you for this hour to which you have appointed each one of us. Uh, we take our calling seriously. I pray we take our calling seriously. Keep within this body at Calvary Chapel the pattern of sound teaching to guard our lives against the evil one and to be exemplars of the deposit that you have entrusted with us. God, it is to this end that we do pray that your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, but in the meantime, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those have sinned against us. I'm tired of just sitting on the couch. I'm over it. Um, just propel us to move. Find ourselves in you and then move into the public square. God, that is our prayer this morning. May it ruffle some feathers. Amen. Right, uh, we, uh, we run out of time. We're not going to do,